Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 98, Revelation, True and Just Are Your Judgments. And in this episode, we are going to look at the first half of Revelation chapter 16. So we'll look at the first nine verses. And as you may have been able to tell, the title of this episode is very similar to the title of last week's episode. And that was not necessarily intentional. Both titles come straight out of the passage. And so the words true and just are simply inverted here. And instead of saying just and true are your ways, as we looked at last week, this one is true and just are your judgments. Because in Revelation 16, the final bowls of the wrath of God, the wrath of God is finished. These are beginning to be unleashed on the earth. And what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to see many of the similarities there are between these bowl plagues and bowl judgments and many of the types of things that happened in Egypt. We're going to make some connections between what was really taking place in Egypt as it was a statement against the gods that the Egyptians worshipped and how much of the language still used in Revelation 16 points us to idolatry. And it points us to things coming back on the very heads of the people who committed the idolatry and the injustice and the oppression, getting what they deserve, or as we might often say today, letting the punishment fit the crime. And so as we continue to work our way through the book, I'm anxious to, as we've been doing, keep connecting it with where we've been in Revelation, where we are headed, exalt the goodness and the justice of God. And for us to rally around the words that John presents to us in the first half of Revelation 16. So without any more of an introduction, let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 16 verses 1 through 9. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Now, as I shared in the introduction, one of the things that I think is going on here with these bowl judgments is the idea of letting the punishment fit the crime. And where I am getting that from is really right in the heart of the section that I just read, verses five and six. It's something that this angel, who John tells us is in charge of the waters, speaks out loudly, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. 
It is what they deserve. Now, what I find really interesting about this is that the judgments of God, according to Revelation 16, are being described as things that the people who are on the receiving end of these judgments, they have sort of made their bed, if you will, in this type of setting. The punishment fitting the crime is something that I think in terms of judgment simply resonates deeply with the human spirit. There's a part of us that doesn't just long for and hope for justice or doesn't just long for somebody to be properly you know, punished for the crimes that they've committed, but yet the very nature of the crimes that they committed, um, getting a taste of their own medicine maybe, or having something come back onto their own heads. And this is language, believe it or not, that the Old Testament uses quite a bit. And in several weeks, I'm going to have a by the book interview with Christopher Wright, who is my absolute most favorite Old Testament scholar and has probably had the most profound impact on the way I read the Old Testament than any other scholar out there. Um, He recently wrote a book that's sort of a popular level book looking at idolatry throughout the Old Testament, and it's simply called Here Are Your Gods faithful discipleship in idolatrous times. And I really want to tee up Dr. Wright to be able to speak much more confidently and um, authoritatively on this topic than I do. But I would like to dip into it just a little bit today because when it comes time to, to looking at idolatry, the idols that people um, put their energy in and, and the, the things that people end up worshiping or exalting to a place of prominence or to a place of, of godlike status in their lives, when those things, which are the work of human hands, when those things don't satisfy in the end, all the hope and the confidence that we put in them crumbles and all of our hopes crumble with them. And that is both a judgment of the Lord, but it's also his mercy because the Lord is interested in us noticing that he is the one solely responsible for taking care of us, for providing for our needs, for alleviating our fears, all of the types of things that you and I might be drawn into choosing to worship other gods. And what I hope Dr. Wright will help us see is that worshiping gods doesn't just mean, oh, here's this little statue, I built it, let me bow down and worship it. That sounds silly to us. It doesn't seem like it fits. But I think a better way to look at this is that when the Lord tells the the people, fear the Lord, um, what he's saying is don't fear other things. And people tend to fear for their safety or they fear that they will run out of money or they feel that they won't be provided for or that they won't be cared for. And so what idols are, are ways in which people align their desires and their, their fears around things that they believe will keep them from being in harm's way, or they will keep them from being in poverty, or they will keep them from having to face these types of fears. Or, and, and you could flip it and just say, well, it's also the things that we need. You know, we have natural tendencies to deify sources from which the necessities that we have are deemed to come. So in in our context today, money, or as the New Testament calls it, mammon, is clearly a god. It's clearly an idol. It is clearly something that the wealthy are grasping for, the poor believe they need. And anytime you see a society where there is an increasing disparity between the rich and the poor, you know that the God of mammon is being worshiped um, loudly and clearly. 
And so people tend to counter their fears by investing inordinate and idolatrous trust in whatever we think will give us the ultimate security we crave. And believe it or not, when we look at the kinds of bold judgments that are being released on the earth, the sun, things are being done to the sun, water is being turned to blood, it ought to, if we're good rememberers and good readers of our Bibles, to take us all the way back to Egypt, to the plagues. Um, that took place there for the very first time as a result of the Lord's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And you may know this, but many scholars have taken the time to identify that many of the plagues themselves, the plague of the frogs or the plague of the gnats or the plague of the darkness or turning water into blood, the various plagues that the Lord unleashed on Egypt were in direct response to many of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Now, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They, 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 they literally worshipped it as the source of life. And if you stop and think about this for just a second, this isn't like we might imagine, oh, I have this little statue in my house and I pray to it and I think something's going to happen, but I kind of roll my eyes as a 21st century American and I realize that, you know, that isn't really going to happen. No, in Egypt, to worship the Nile as a god or to worship it as something divine means that when you have plenteous water in the Nile, it provides actual, you know, H2O to the plants and to the crops that are growing, your, your, your animals are able to drink that water and as are you. You're able to drink it. You're able to cook your food in it. It literally provides you with life. And so when the Nile overflows, that's always a sign of tremendous blessing. If the Nile were to ever dry up, that's a sign of tremendous judgment, of, of punishment. Some, something is amiss. We need to, to get life straightened out again. And so when the Lord in Egypt, and I know we've talked about this before, but when the Lord in Egypt sends Moses to take his staff and touch the Nile and the Nile turns to blood, if we stop and think, well, this isn't just God showing Moses or you know, through Moses that he's powerful and he can do whatever he wants. No, it is a judgment on the Egyptians' source of life, the God they believe brings them life, right? Because in the chapter right before Moses does this, or several chapters before rather, Pharaoh, out of the, the, the belief, the false belief that the Israelites were growing too numerous and were no longer going to be able to be contained, took all of the Hebrew baby boys, two years old and under, and threw them into the sea. You see, the Egyptians, in their worship of the Nile as their giver of life, saw their source of life threatened by the Israelites growing too numerous. And as a result, they took the baby boys of the Hebrews and threw them into the Nile. If you think about it in this way, they sacrificed them to their God, their God of life, by killing them. And the Nile in that way became a place of death for Israel. And one of the recurring themes you'll see all through the Old Testament is that idols are unable to deliver those who save them, who, who worship them rather. They are unable to provide human flourishing. They are unable to provide for the people what they need and what the nations around them need. In fact, when you know a nation is sucked into its own idol worship or it has 
um, nation, uh, national or nationwide gods. It's when their faithfulness to their own God produces harm and oppression and corruption for other nations' people. And that's exactly what's happening in Egypt. And so when Moses sticks out his staff to turn the Nile into blood, don't think of that just as some really flashy miracle or, oh man, it's really gonna stink to be an Egyptian now because they, they, they can't drink this water. It's got a bunch of blood in it. Think of it rather as the Lord saying, your worship of this God has actively and has literally oppressed and murdered countless other people as a result of its worship. I am coming to judge this God as the death pit and the death hole that it actually is. And to show you that, I am going to take the drinking water that you believe you need for life and I'm going to turn it into the death that it actually is and let you, Egyptians, experience the very death that your worship of this God has forced the Israelites to experience it as. This is what a judgment is. And what I would like to propose here for this discussion, particularly as Revelation is unfolding this for us, Revelation is pointing us toward the reality that judgments and idolatry and things collapsing back in on themselves are so much more having to do with economic realities and national identities than we maybe realize. There is an exorbitant amount of economic brokenness and oppression and disparity between the rich and the poor that is evidenced clearly word for word in Revelation 18. And what the Lord is doing right now is he is showing the fact that when he comes, true and just are your judgments. He is showing that the world systems that have built idolatries for themselves, that have secured for themselves money or secured for themselves protection or secured for themselves weapons of violence or military or what have you, those very things are going to be turned back on their own heads. Why? Verse 6 in Revelation 16 says, For they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The very judgments that these nations felt were good and right, or maybe good, the Lord is now saying, those were evil. And if you want to define evil as good, then I'm going to let you taste a bit of your own medicine. And this is how idolatry works, and this is how judgment works. Maybe a famous example would be um, from Jeremiah 50. We, there's numerous passages, and I'm not going to go through them all now. I may at some point in the future, but I wrote a bunch of these down through Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51. And it says, raise a shout against Babylon all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done. Now, this isn't just a unilateral prayer to God, punish her the way she punished us. No, the Lord's punishment is oftentimes giving people over to the gods that they have chosen for themselves, letting them experience and feel the destructive effects of the gods they have chosen. Here in Revelation chapter 16, we're no longer invested in whether or not the Lord giving people over is going to persuade them to see that their ways are broken and now to follow the lamb. We had that opportunity in Revelation chapter 9. 
But here in Revelation 16, we get to the end of this fourth series of bowl judgments, and it simply says, they did not repent and give him glory. Now, if you're following along in Revelation, this is just right back to Revelation chapter 9 in the trumpet judgments. And here's what it says in Revelation 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And way back in an episode, I can't even remember which one, we talked about the fact that the idea of they did not repent of the works of their hands. The works of their hands is idolatry language. It is, it is man attempting to become like God, which is the original sin in the garden, and the fact that in Genesis 2, the Lord crafted man, mankind is the work of the Lord's hands. And one of the number one reasons why idolatry was forbidden in the Old Testament is because human beings are to be God's images. Humans aren't to go as if they were God and to craft images, works of their own hands, to fall down and worship. Why? Because those things that humans construct those ideologies, those belief systems, those economic strategies that human beings construct, when people place their confidence and hope and faith in those things that they created, those things inevitably implode and disappoint. Now, this does not mean that in terms of pure wisdom, as we're given in the book of Proverbs, that a person cannot be wise in the way that they handle their money. That's absolutely is, 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 is true according to the Bible. But there's a major difference between being a steward of something that you believe the Lord has entrusted to you and into your care and believing that that very thing that he has entrusted to you is in fact where all of your hope and confidence should be. And there's a really fine line here between knowing, no, the money is not the root of all evil. That is a terrible misquotation from a passage in the New Testament. The, the verse itself says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now that is absolutely true. So there's a very fine line between knowing how much of my money am I loving and holding on to in a selfish way versus how much am I willing to allow it to simply be something that I take care of and am able to take care of others with. And so let me, let me just give you one example. Many of you know about the book of Jonah. Jonah was sent to go to Assyria. He was there to preach to the people to repent or the Lord's judgment was coming. And Jonah didn't want to preach to the people of Nineveh. He wanted the Lord's judgment to come. He hated the Assyrians, wanted to have nothing to do with them. And so he resisted. He ran away from the Lord. He, he chose not to actually go to Nineveh. And um, the Lord sends um, a terrible storm um, onto, onto Jonah, and then Jonah eventually realizes there's no way I'm going to escape this. And he is, he finally reluctantly says, you know what, I'd actually rather die 
than still go to Assyria. So, so lest all of you die as well, just throw me into the heart of the sea. Throw me into the very chaotic waters of the, the chaos that I've created for you and for everyone else right now. I'd actually rather die than, um, you know, go, go to Assyria. And the Lord sends a great fish and it swallows Jonah. And while Jonah is inside the fish for three days and three nights, he, he prays. And that's, that's actually Jonah chapter two and the entire chapter is just his prayer. And here's what Jonah says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Interesting. When Jonah prays to the Lord, the Lord answers. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that is a beautiful prayer. And Jonah, believe it or not, is quoting from several Psalms there or the the compiler of that book who has decided to draw our attention back to the Lord's provision, the Lord's salvation at times for David and now here for Jonah as well. But I want to draw your attention to verse 8 and I just wanted to point out what I think's going on here because it's very relevant to Revelation 16. In the ESV, which is the translation I tend to use, Jonah says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What that sounds like to me is those who worship idols give up the love that they could have from the Lord because those idols are vain, they're empty. Here's how the message translates that verse. Those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, walk away from their only true love. Or here's how the New American Standard translates it. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, right? So a a vain idol cannot be faithful to you in a time when you need them like the Lord can. Here's the Lord who Jonah prays to and the Lord hears him and is able to actually deliver him. Or the NIV translates it this way, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And I think that this one is huge because Jonah is interested in the Lord's love. He's interested in the Lord's compassion. And one of the major problems with idolatry, aside from robbing God of the glory he is due, is that it also doesn't allow the Lord to exercise his love towards you because you're not looking to him for trust, to alleviate your fears, to find security, to find hope and to find your identity. And here's how the, the, um, the Net Bible, which is a wonderful translation, here's how it does it. And I like this one the best, I think. Those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. And I love that because there is mercy to be had from the Lord, but things that are not merciful, like 
worshiping a god of water in the Nile who's going to bring supposed life to the Egyptians when a worship of that vain idol actually produces death. And then when the Lord judges it, it doesn't provide life for you either. And so this really is what is beginning to happen in this passage. And what we noticed in verse two of Revelation 16 was that the first angel poured his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So these judgments are those, and if we go back to chapter 13, where we first got this mark, where we first recognized what is going on, it's the allegiance and the loyalty the mark on the right hand or on the forehead of believing that Rome or code for Babylon or whatever, any world system opposed to the ways of God, any natural worldly kingdom that elevates its own status and its own national pride to a place of the gods. Rome offered peace. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, as long as you are within the Roman empire, we will protect you. You simply give your allegiance to Rome and all will be well. Here, however, there is now judgments that are coming upon those who believe that system. Why? Because that system is going to be destroyed. And even now in chapter 16, things are beginning to unravel. The idolatries that the beast prompted people to worship, that he had elevated for the people in the Roman culture to the place of the divine, those things are beginning to be broken down. The beast himself will be destroyed in chapter 17, and then the great dragon is going to be destroyed in chapter 20. So what's happening right now is what we saw in chapter 12, we saw that a great dragon is, is, is a puppet manipulating the ways of, of two different beasts. And then we've got false things that are being proclaimed, false prophets. We've got idols. We've got a mark of allegiance and loyalty. That was the order. and went dragon, beast, and then this false prophet. Well, now in chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19, the destruction of Babylon, the true justice and judgment of God is coming against that broken system, and it is going to pick it apart in reverse. So the idolatries and the false things of this world are going to be crushed first. The beast who stood behind these types of idols is then going to be crushed. The idolatrous, adulterous ways of the empire is going to be crushed next. And then following that will be the dragon itself followed closely by death will ultimately be defeated. And that is when the Lord will bring in his reign once again, the reign that his son began when he came the first time. And so this really is the thrust of what's happening in the first several um, verses of Revelation 16. We are not to look at these things so much like, oh goodness, this is gonna be some geological disruption. Um, Things like that may take place, but what we are seeing, particularly as it relates to things like rivers and springs of water becoming blood, notice then that these are connected They're connected to the fact that the saints and the prophets, those who've been crying out for justice, those who've been deferring their own revenge by trusting in the Lord to bring vengeance at the right time, the answer to their requests, to their cries, to their pleas for justice that we saw in the fifth seal by the souls of those under the altar that we saw in chapter eight of Revelation, where those around the altar were praying and then mixing
burning their prayers with incense and the Lord hurling them to the earth, his judgments for justice and truth are brought about in response to the prayers of his own people who don't have a vendetta, who don't have some eagerness to, to watch other people get destroyed. It's because they love and crave the justice of the Lord to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every time we pray the Lord's prayer, this is what we're asking for. We are asking that the Lord bring his ruling presence to bear on the earth, the kind of ruling presence that blesses all people, that brings justice to all nations, that does not favor one nation over against another the way that every other kingdom of this world nation sets itself up to do. And Egypt was the first example of oppression on God's people. Babylon was the next great expression. Rome was the expression in Jesus's time and any other nation who idolizes and divinizes its own national greatness can fall prey to the same thing. And so John is reminding us that there will come a point when there is no longer opportunity for repentance because the hard-hearted nature of those who have invested their entire lives into worshiping these gods are going to fall with them. And this again is why John will tell us in Revelation 18, 4, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her plagues, lest you share in her sins. So ultimately the goal for John is to remind the church, to remind you and me what is coming and how it will come undone so that we can step out of it now and begin to place our faith in the only one who actually matters. As we wrap up our discussion here, I did want to draw your attention to the fourth angel who then pours out his bowl, we're told in verse 8, on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Now, this is really interesting in terms of thinking literally, right? I mean, are we saying that this angel's judgment was to remove, you know, or to, to uh, intensify UV rays and to zap everyone's sunscreen so that it doesn't actually work anymore? And I say that a bit facetiously, but, but no, I, d I don't think that's what John has in mind. And said so he says, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And so we know even from Romans chapter two, that it is the kindness of God that is meant to lead people to repentance. And so what typically happens when those who receive things like this coming from the Lord, they imagine that he's just as harsh and just as brutal as they are, right? Because people who are hard-hearted tend to resemble the kinds of gods they worship. So if they are a money-grabbing, power-hungry type of person, it's because somewhere in their own hearts, they've lodged the idea that money is the all-consuming good in this world, and whoever has the most power is in the best position. And so when you do that, when you lodge those beliefs into your heart and into your mind, you become an incredibly greedy, narcissistic, um, type of an individual. And if you grow into that and find yourself very at home and comfortable in that way, and then bad things happen to you, you end up lashing out, curse whatever it is that came against me because you've been living your whole life assuming as long as you've got enough money and enough power and control over your life, 
nothing like destruction should ever come to you. But I think what's happening in, in, in these passages is we're getting at the heart issues of what's going on in people's real lives. Those who've invested a lot of time and a lot of energy and maybe even resources into certain things that man has created that we then elevate to a place of godlike status. And as Jonah said, we forsake, we forfeit the mercy that could be ours by bowing down and worshiping these worthless idols. But I, I even think that Jeremiah 17, the first several verses in that chapter are really helpful here. And I'd like to read them. Actually, verses five through 10 of Jeremiah 17, it says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now that verse right there sounds a lot like our idolatry, right? We're trusting in man and makes flesh his strength. The things that man have made, um, the, the works of their hands, right? The, the things that we have constructed for ourselves. Those are things that now we're saying, cursed is the man who does this, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And then Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, Jeremiah is clearly speaking in metaphor here, but he says that the man who trusts in the Lord does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and he is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. In chapter 16, uh, verse nine in Revelation, it says those were scorched by the fierce heat. And so there are some idols here. Those are people who have placed their trust in other people and made flesh their strength. They have idolized that which is created by human hands. They've idolized human constructs. And therefore, when the Lord's judgment comes, they don't have any recourse but to curse it. They don't see it as the inevitable consequence of falling down and worshiping things that we've created. They don't see it that way. Instead, they see it as something that God is cruelly coming to punish them for. And they've mixed it up. They've made a terrible mistake. And I can't help but think that this is a bit about what's going on in Jonah chapter four. Um, if you remember that short little book, after Jonah prays, he's vomited up onto the dry land. We, we read his prayer a moment ago. He then goes to the people of Nineveh. He preaches this ridiculously dumb sermon. He's just like, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Like that's all he can muster and it doesn't matter. Everybody in the land repents. They put on sackcloth and ashes. The king repents. He tells the animals to repent. Like the Lord's blessing comes and he has mercy and Jonah gets angry about it. He gets flat out angry. Um, God relents from the disaster that he's going to bring. And let me just read to you portions of chapter four. It just says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Um, in Hebrew, it actually says it was a great evil 
in Jonah's eyes. I mean, the Lord's compassion here is considered evil to Jonah. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He is in a shaded space. He is, Jonah is now in a comfortable location. He feels the blessing of God who has shielded him from the intense heat, right? This is what happens. Um, and then it says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, yeah, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah, I think in this scene, had so much trusted in his own ways, saw in himself and in his own people somehow that they justly deserved the compassion and mercy of the Lord, but that Nineveh and Assyria didn't. Jonah had a belief. He had a national identity crisis where he believed that the nation of Israel, because they were Israel, was more deserving of the compassion of the Lord than the Ninevites were. And when the Lord's compassion overflowed and it went beyond the borders of Israel and it was willing to be and actually was extended to Assyria, the problem that we're facing now is Jonah's anger toward that. He was good and fine with the Lord's compassion and blessing and kindness being rained down on Israel so long as it was poured out and it stopped flowing when it hit the edges of Israel. Fill us up, Lord. We're a big, empty tank. Fill us full of your goodness. Fill us full of your mercy. But when the Lord's fullness and mercy keeps being poured out and it spills over the boundaries of one nation into another nation, it calls into question whose belief, who we really thought was responsible for bringing blessing on that nation in the first place. And let me tell you something. In national idolatries or nationalism, Ever so subtly, the belief is truly picked up by many people in, in an individual nation that it is their goodness, their faithfulness, their righteousness, their following of the Lord that is the reason why they're being blessed the way they are. This is what Jeremiah 17 warns against. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. 
the heat comes, right? Here's Jonah, and the Lord, I think, is giving Jonah a little object lesson. He's saying, look, you're out here, you're sulking, you're sitting up on the side of the city waiting for it to be burned up. You're now hot and uncomfortable. So I'm going to grow a plant up to shade you, to let you feel. And Jonah is incredibly grateful for this plant that grows up. He's just, he, he's, like a, he's like a silly little child who kicks and screams in the corner until mom gives him the cookie that he's been begging for and he's all smiles. And then he looks over across the room and sees the same mom give the other child a cookie that he first felt robbed him of the toys that he deserved. And now all of a sudden, one cookie for him is not good enough. He's angry because of the Lord's compassion directed to somebody else. And this is what happens with Jonah. He sits under the shade and he loves it. And then the next day, a, a circumstance occurs and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the plant withers away and now Jonah is sitting in this immense heat and he hates life. The difference here is what's going on in Jonah. Jonah needed shade because he was bitterly waiting in the hot sun for Nineveh to be destroyed. If Jonah had just accepted the Lord's blessing and outpouring of grace on the Ninevites, then he never would have been up on the hillside sitting in the hot sun waiting for them to be destroyed in the first place. The issue that the Lord is trying to get a hold of for Jonah is what's going on in his own heart. This is always what the Lord is trying to do with judgments. And sadly, the book of Jonah ends without any resolution, but that's part of the point. Because within the book of Jonah, what we are confronted with is that the Lord's compassion, the Lord's kindness, the Lord's grace far exceeds the kind of grace, compassion, and kindness that we tend to have. And that's something that the church needs to be made, made, made more aware of, is that we are not serving a God who is like, hey, you got to do it all my way and I'm willing to give you some grace, but if you screw it up, you're in big trouble. That's not our God. But we have to face this because the kinds of things that happened, they, they cursed the name of God, right? Who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And there is a very real reality at which those who have been invested so much into the ways of their, and the works of their own hands and the wealth that they have built for themselves and on and on will find that to embrace the Lord's ways is too difficult a task for them. And this is why I think Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 that it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's difficult because a rich person has far too much to lose to enter the kingdom. And yet for all of those who have been under the oppressive thumb of manipulators, of narcissists, of oppressors, of unjust systems, their day is coming. And for a church of Jesus Christ who believes that Jesus has already brought the end into the present through his resurrection, we as a church begin to um, stand in the corner with and stand in solidarity with those who are still oppressed, knowing that we are living out now what life will be like in the end and therefore, since we know all oppressive systems will be judged as the corrupt oppressive systems that they are in the end, we live as if they are already judged in the present. And so anytime we see someone under the oppressive hand of an unjust system, promising life to one group of people, but death to another as a result of the same idolatrous ways, 
We call it on the carpet. We call it for what it is. And we declare in solidarity with the oppressed, this is an unjust system. You need to fix it. This is going to be judged and we are not going to stand idly by and allow you to continue to crush people under these broken systems. Now, learning how to do that faithfully is a challenge and it has always been a challenge, but the church cannot shy away from the need to speak the truth. Once again, just and true are your ways. True and just are your judgments. The Lord's ways and the Lord's judgments are two sides of the same coin. Jesus's ways, his embracing of the tax collectors and the sinners was simultaneously a judgment on the religious leaders who created a system where you couldn't befriend a tax collector and a sinner and still think you were following the ways of God. Ways and judgments, two sides of the same coin. The Lord's judgment and idolatries can't mix. In the book of Revelation, as I've said numerous times and will continue to say, is written to challenge us to be loyal to the ways of the Lamb and to be willing to check all of the kinds of heart idolatries and economic idolatries that exist that we are drawn to because they will one day be destroyed. And John and Jesus don't want us going down with that ship. They want us to come out and to see these broken systems for what they are. And I hope that Dr. Wright will lead us into some of that when I get a chance to talk with him in a couple of weeks about his new book. But that is all that I have for you. I do have several by-the-book um, interviews I've recently done that I hope to release in a timely manner. Lots of things going on in my world, church-related, family-related. I'm hoping to continue keeping the podcast coming on a weekly basis, but I am toying with the idea of taking a break at some point or maybe slowing down just a bit. I'm wrestling through my own idolatries in that way, if I'm honest with you, listeners. Um, I love doing this. And um, I, I do need to evaluate at times when, when a break is needed and I'm able to direct my attention elsewhere and uh, take a break from being able to try to produce these each week. It's been a long stretch and I have loved every minute of it, um, but I am really trying to face my own, my own idols and things that I feel um, I want to do versus what maybe I need to do. And I'm just... Continuing to pray about that would, would always welcome your prayers too as listeners. Um, life's tough and uh, we want to be faithful, but we want to do the kinds of things that Jesus wants us to do, not always just what we want. So I'm not giving up on the podcast. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm just sharing with you because I, I trust you all and I've appreciated the interaction I've had with you um, over the months. So that's all the time we have for this week. Talk to you next time.